You're listening to the Relationship Centered Learning Podcast, a podcast to inspire and empower you to be a difference maker in a dysfunctional educational system. Hear weekly from adults and students who are having a radical impact in the education space as they share from their minds and hearts, giving us practical tools that we can take back to our classrooms and campuses. Here to take you outside the educational box is author, disruptor, and your host, Kevin Curtis. So before we get started with the show, if you really like the GTKY concept of connections before content, but you thought to yourself, where do I get those good questions at? And you're thinking, well, I'm still doing virtual teaching versus in-person teaching, and I just want to connect with my kids, but I'm not sure what questions to ask. What we've done for you is created a free resource of 25 GTKY questions that you can immediately download and go back into your virtual setting or your in-person classroom setting to make a difference of getting to know your students before you dive into the content. All you have to do is head over to our website at rclfirst.com, sign up for our newsletter, and you will get immediate access to 25 GTKY questions that you can go back into the classroom and started putting connections before content. So let's get right back into today's episode. Hey, welcome back to the show, everyone. On today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Jeff Springer, an educator for 34 years, a former Texas high school football coach, 11-year veteran in the classroom, formerly the principal at the Magnolia High School. In 2013, Jeff was selected as the state of Texas TASSP state principal of the year. Besides founding Spring Strategies LLC, Jeff currently serves part-time as the minister of men at Wildwood UMC and is also the founder of Suit Up Ministries, a nonprofit men's ministry. Jeff loves being a husband, a dad, and a grandfather, resides in Montgomery, Texas, has been married for 39 years, and has two children and two grandchildren. Jeff has a lot of experience. We have a lot to cover today, so let's get started. Welcome to the Relationship Center Learning Podcast, where we put relationships at the center of all learning. I am super excited today to have Dr. Jeff Springer on the show. Welcome. Man, it's great to be here, Kevin. What an honor. What an honor to talk about uh, things that you love. Absolutely. So as we get started with every show, we always want to model what we do in the classroom, and that is connections before content. And we like to promote that in the simple, what we call the GTKY format. That just means get to know you. So can I call you Jeff or Dr. Springer? What would you prefer? Yeah. Hey, Jeff is good. You got it, Jeff. So I've got five simple questions for you, and then you'll flip five back at me, kind of get to know me before we dive into today's content. So Jeff, if you could, simple question number one, if you could attend any concert, what concert would you want to attend that you have not seen before? Did I, oh my God, I'm glad you clarified that because before the pandemic, literally in Houston, Texas, March 7th, I think the very last event in Toyota Center, downtown Houston, my wife and I went to the Eagles. And uh, of course that's, you know, I grew up in the seventies um, and I, you know, everybody claims they had the best music, you know, and I think the seventies, you know, has, uh, again, definitely the, a lot of, um, of bands of, of notoriety, but anyway, so since I've seen them and, um, I would have to say, uh, and I've got my, I've got a, how appropriate a Jackson Brown, baby, a, a t-shirt. It just came in the mail. I ordered it when I was out of town. It was here when I got here. And uh, so I have already checked out a Jackson Brown concert. He's actually with James Taylor, who I have seen um, in May of 2020, 
21. So here in Houston. So that's going to be, uh, I, that's my answer. Jackson Brown, baby. Awesome. Running, running on empty. <laughs> Love it. All right. Question number two, if you could watch any sport live post pandemic, what sport would you want to watch? Oh, college football. We need college football, man. I, oh my gosh. I need college football. I'm a, I, I'm a transplant. I've lived in Texas since the fifth grade, but I was born in Ohio. And of course I tell everybody that knows me well, no, and I'm in my man cave right now. And if I, if I showed you, uh, uh, half my walls and my floors are covered with scarlet and gray. So I'm a Buckeye. And so we got to have college football. A uh, side note, my dad played for Woody Hayes at Ohio State. My dad is from Ohio. Um, oh and so he, is, he, he is definitely a, a Buckeye. Um, well, you're, so well, you're my hero. And if I, I'm not going to do it now, but I have behind me, I have a letter that I wrote, Woody Hayes, uh, framed in 1971 because I was going from eighth grade to ninth grade football. And I asked him what he suggested to get ready for high school football. And he's, he talked about, and he wrote, you know, that back then there was no email. It was a typed, typed letter and sign, hand signature letter. And I got to meet him in 87 and I sent him a cop. I spent an hour in his office. This was after he was obviously not coaching anymore, but he was still an icon on campus. And my wife and I went, sat in his office for an hour. We were on a two week vacation. That was the, at the beginning of our vacation. And I told my wife, we can go home now because it's just not going to get any better than that. But um, I felt like I knew everything. You know, I, I met my grandpa. I felt like I had known him all my life. And, um, but yeah, and he talked about how football, a football game is won in short sprints. So, uh, he, he suggested that I ran, run a lot of 30 and 40 yard sprints in preparation. And, 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 uh, anyway, I'll have to show you that later, but yeah. Wow. If, if anybody that has associated with the Ohio state university and played for Woody, man, that's in my eyes, man, that's a, he's, that's my hero, baby. Appreciate that. Question number three, what is your most comfortable pair of shoes? I am an Adidas guy, man. I, I, I'm loyal to, I, I have bought in the full deal and I either wear Vans or Adidas, but um, I, have a, I have a pair of Adidas, blue Adidas, and they're the most comfortable shoes I wear. And now that I'm repurposed, I don't have to, you know, wear dress shoes very often. So then I'll leave me fourth question, uh, tie or no tie? No tie, but I do button up. I'm a, I'm a weird dude, man. My wife says unbutton your collar, you know? And so if I have a collar shirt, I always button the top button. Gotcha. But no, tie, no tie. All right. Last question. Favorite kind of ice cream. Well, I'm a yogurt guy cause I can't really do ice cream, but peach homemade peach. Awesome. There we go. Five questions, Jeff. You got okay. some back. Flip five back at me. Okay, brother. Okay. So what was your desire to go into coaching? 
Because um, I grew up in a, man, I grew up needing something different. Um, I grew up in drugs, alcohol, and addiction. And all three of my brothers introduced me to that early age. I started smoking marijuana at nine. I was introduced to cocaine at 12. And my parents didn't condone it. But And I was eight and a half years younger than all of my siblings. So uh, three brothers and a sister. And here I am, the last kid. They call me the accident. I prefer surprise. And uh, I got into seventh grade athletics and I had played sports growing up. Don't get me wrong, but it was the first time I I didn't get to play. I didn't get a chance to play youth football, but in seventh grade and eighth grade, like all of a sudden I I was strong. I hit puberty fast. I was shaving in the sixth grade. Um, And so um, I was strong. I was fast. And all of a sudden these, uh, these adults were filling me with things that were not drug and alcohol related. In fact, it was like, you can't, you shouldn't do drugs and alcohol. So in middle school, I really abandoned hanging out with my siblings to participate in that lifestyle. And then it worked right into high school. When I got into ninth grade um, high school, you know, um, they used to check our report cards and coach Russell Tatum one day, we used to have A, B's and C's went to this side of the room, D's and F went to that side of the room. And I always remind our listeners before I tell this story, remember I'm in Texas and this is the early mid eighties. And so we, we get licks if you had D's and F's. And so I was on the ABC side as a room coach. And one day coach Russell Tatum, who played a stint with the Dallas Cowboys came over there on this other room. And out of all the freshmen, out of a hundred plus freshmen, he grabbed me by the back of the shirt and said, why can't your grades be more like Curtis's? And he dropped me. And man, he has no idea how those words stuck. I ended up graduating with the highest grade point average of all male athletes at John Jay High School that that my senior year. And when I said, and then Coach uh, Terry Hall, biggest influence, I think, on my life, Coach Terry Hall, I looked at him my senior year, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, Coach, I want to be a coach. And I, I thought to myself, if this is what athletics did for me, if I could just get back in and I could just have one kid feel what I feel, it would be worth it. Man, that, that's a whole another conversation, man, coaching. Yes, yeah. sir. Absolutely. Okay, so if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you travel to? A place that I haven't gone to. I want to go to Greece. Mm-hmm. I, I really, really, I think it's from just the pictures you see, the blue water, the white, I don't know, but Greece just seems to be the one on the forefront of my brain that I'd love to go. Mm-hmm. Cool. So in your, in your, in your spare time, um, when you have time, what, what do you like to do best? Um, I'd say either golf or hunt. Uh, and right now it's golf hunting seasons kind of out of the season. So golf right now is, um, and I, I used to play as a coach. We couldn't play very often because it was coaching school or season, you know, and I primarily coach football and baseball. So basketball would be kind of the season. It's kind of the winter. Um, so, you know, I, uh, last July, I really picked up the sticks again and I've just fallen, re-fallen in love with the game. So golf right now would be my, my go-to. Mm-hmm. So if you could model your life after one individual, who would that be? Mm, my goodness. These are, man, uh, that's a great question. Whoo, coach, you asked a good one on that one. Man, I'll can, to, I, I, go ahead. Maybe more than one. I mean, no, 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 no. I'm look. I there's, there's just so many people that just yeah. are flooding my brain. Right. Um, see, and, and I'm not going to cop out on your answer, but I'm going to be really real for a second. I, I, I'm going to tell you this, Jeff, it would not be my dad. Mm-hmm. Let me just say it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we'll leave it at that. But, sure. uh, but there's great athletes. There's great coaches. I mean, I, I think 
old school, uh, somebody like Tom Landry, right? Mm-hmm. Who just mm-hmm. stood for excellence and integrity in, and then you understand about how he became a Christian and, and how he led in certain ways. Like I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, despite I'm not a Jerry Jones fan. I'm a Cowboys fan from the fact that Tom Landry to me was such a, like a, was the Woody Hayes for you. Tom mm-hmm. Landry was like that person, iconic person of me of just, you saw him and you just wanted to be him. And yeah. so I actually got to rent his old house in Irving uh, it's an Airbnb, and believe it or not, the people around the neighborhood hate it. Um, I, I got all kinds of looks and stuff. We actually, I brought all my staff to potentially start writing their, our first book together as a team up there. And so I actually got to be in, old, in Tom Landry's old house, photographs of him, things in that. And uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of like a shrine to Tom Landry. And so ha, it, that, that was a little bucket listing right there. Found, found it on an Airbnb. That's cool. He, yes, sir. He, he was such a gentleman, that's for sure. What is, the, what is one, maybe one item that you have received uh, when you think back in your teaching and coaching career, education career, of course, you're still in education, just doing it, you just have different audiences that you hold on as priceless? Hmm. Um, on my desk downstairs, I think I have a whole box full of either cards or momentums or different things from kids. They're all symbolically so different, but they all repre- represent the same thing, which is somehow I built such a strong enough relationship for them that they felt like they needed to give me something personal. And I think each and every one of them were those. It's, maybe this is a horrible analogy. But you just mentioned golf for a second. And the reason I say this is, is it's like golf. You go out and you can play crappy and then you hit a couple good shots and that's what keeps you coming back, right? Yeah. I don't know about for everybody. That's for me. Like I, I got a great drive or I hit a green or I hit a putt. And, that, and the reason I say that is those are like the great putts. Those are like the long drives right down the middle of fairway. You get those things, Jeff, and it's like... <sighs> This is why I became an educator because it's it's the few times that you actually hear that you're making a flipping difference in somebody's life. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes they wait till the end of the year and sometimes they don't. But either way, man, those, those, those things are better than any paycheck I could have ever received. And it, isn't it surprising sometimes that you receive it from that kid or teacher that you you may not have thought you had a relationship with them and they just come out of left field and you go, Oh my God, I did. They were listening or I, or I did make a difference. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was listening to a video on gateway church yesterday of Michael jr. Talking about the, the, the question I asked, and he mentioned the punchline in life, right? And that's like the punchline, right? All of a sudden we're going one direction and the punchline takes you another. And what you just described, just sorry, that was the first thing. It's this punchline. I'm like, yes, because you don't see it coming. And that's why that's why it has so much meaning because you didn't see it coming. You know, the kids that you have, the natural relationships that love on you and you love each other throughout the whole year or the teachers, you know, I always joked because they always used to say, you know, 
and, and you, you, you'll appreciate this as an administrator. They always say, oh, you have Curtis's kids. And I'm like, I don't have Curtis's kids. It's just the same five teachers that happen to walk through my door and have a conversation with me. Anybody can be a Curtis kid, right. but, but y'all, we, I, but the door's opening, but y'all don't trust me or you, you know, y'all don't want to come in there and those types of things. So those people, I get it. It's the punchline of that one teacher that you didn't see it come in. They're like, Hey, you know, you made a difference in my life this year. And I'm like, what? Yeah. You know, that, that, that right there, Jeff, again, is what keeps me just intrigued in the work of relationships and with people. Mm, that's awesome. All right, brother. Hey, that was great questions. Uh, you took me down some memory lanes there. So just like we do in the classroom, we want to connect before we get into the content. And again, teachers, these questions may take a little bit longer, may go a little bit deeper, but don't let that scare you. Stay shallow, stay simple, just get to know your students before you dive into that content, whether it's going to be in-person or virtual. So as we dive into the show, hey, Jeff, what got you into education? Start there. Wow. I mean, I, I was, a, I was for two years at, I went, to, I started school at Abilene Christian University and uh, I was a social work major. And of course I had played sports all my life. I was playing football at Abilene Christian my, and my freshman year. And um, so I guess I had this epiphany and I, I, I think what happened was somehow they let me in some of the upper level classes when I wasn't supposed to, I was supposed to have some prerequisites and I realized I loved the sociology courses, psychology courses, but I think I had the heart for it, Kevin, but I don't think I had the stomach for social, some of the social work. And I thought, you know what? being a teacher and a coach is social work. I mean, like you mentioned your ministry earlier, you know, that, that what we do is a calling. Um, and it's so true. And so I think I realized that, uh, sports had been so much a part of my life. All the influencers, you know, positive had been teachers and coaches. And I thought, what am I doing? You know, I might as well do something that I, that I truly love. And I have to say at first, Coaching got me into, uh, you know, in Texas, you know how that is. Coaching football got me into teaching, but I found out very, in a very short time that the icing on the cake was not the coaching. It was the teaching in the classroom and then, and primarily with the non-athletes, you know, the rest of the student body. And, um, you know, I love my athletes and I have relationships with lots of them even today as grown men, but, but sometimes you get tired of those those guys. I mean, you want some normalcy. You just want that. You just want the regular kid that comes in every day, you know, who needs you, you know. And um, so, yeah. So that's really how I got into, and that's how I stayed. And awesome, I love that. So I, I, it's it's amazing how we all trip and, and stumble or fall or whatever it is into education. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I, it was hilarious. Um, there, Trevor Martin, the other day I interviewed him and I asked him, how'd you become a teacher? And he was like, I was standing at Baylor and they were like, you have to make a decision. He was like, right then and there, I was like, education. It was hilarious. The fact that it was like, on the spot. And so I love hearing how educators come into education, but Jeff, you, you're here. You've been here for over 34 years. You, you, you've been a principal for 14 on the same campus. You were a classroom teacher. You were a coach. You've got all of these experiences. And as you look at 
coaching, teaching, and administrator, the one thing that I think you and I resonate is the fact that connections and relationships were important at all of those levels. Would you agree? Absolutely. You know, the most important uh, part of what we do on a daily basis is the relationships we establish with other, other people. You know, I always I would tell people, you know, education is unlike any other career. Everybody that we are in contact with is our customer. And and here's what's the most unique thing. Our customers are also our product. So talk about think about any other business where your your where your customer can also be your product. And so, you know, our customers are our students. We're looking for volunteers all every day and teachers are customers. And as we become, as our sphere of influence increases, you know, they become a lot of times as we get older, uh, our teachers become our children, our students. And um, that becomes more natural, you know, as you get the age gap. And again, uh, community members, uh, board members, you know, your central office staff, your parents, your volunteers, everybody is your customer. And so how are you going to treat the customer? And you're going to, you know, and we all know, we know that the most successful way is with customer service and that takes relationships. So when you were a teacher, um, again, thinking back in the classroom, what was it that drew you wanting to be into leadership? And and as you're reflecting on that, what was it about some of those leaders before you actually stepped into those shoes? What was it about those leaders that helped you feel empowered to be yourself as a teacher in the classroom? Well, for, first of all, Kevin, you know this. I spent a lot of time as an administrator reminding teachers that they are leaders already. You know, I, I, tried, I tried never to say that I moved up from teaching to administration. I just moved over. Um, I moved into a new uh, sphere. Um, so because leader, you know, teachers are leaders in that classroom and they're going to, you know, uh, make your life either, you know, uh, well or very difficult based on the relationships that they have in the classroom and how they lead their class. So, so I would challenge teachers all the time that, um, and students as, well, students as well, that everybody is in that building is a leader. And the only way you can convey that is to have the relationship with them and to take the time to uh, show them and develop them and give them opportunity to cultivate their leadership um, and give them a voice. You know, some teachers are going to some teachers are going to be leaders in their classroom, regardless of what happens in the building. But you want them, you want to give them a voice campus wide, so so everybody has an opportunity to experience their leadership. And um, you know, my department chairs and team leaders uh, were different levels of leadership. You know, th- and coaching staff. Uh, knowing this, you know, you know, obviously we want to be, you know, my expectations for coaches was that they were a teacher first and that they, but, and they exuded that uh, professionalism. And it was like having a building full of administrators. When you give that type of empowerment 
to your staff. And so I didn't really answer your question. I, you know, people tap on your shoulder and they say, if you do a good job where you're at, then they tap on your shoulder and say, hey, Jeff, have you ever thought about being, you know, assistant principal and then assistant principal and associate principal and then associate principal and the principalship? And I've, I've done the same thing with teachers. You, you see that inclination or that, you know, those personal characteristics that lend themselves to a campus-wide, um, you know, person that can see a big picture and is, is campus-centered and not just about what they do. And those are the ones you tap on the shoulders. And that's, and I had those type of mentors that recognize that, you know, I was honestly, I was, I was a dinosaur. I was the old PE health teacher driver's ed. And if I didn't make myself valuable campus wide, man, I'm dime a dozen. So I made myself valuable through, you know, I was at every event. I was at, I mean, I, you, you know, events that I didn't have to be at, events that I didn't coach, uh, one act play and, you know, and art shows and, you know, all the things that my kids were involved in as a teacher that gave me credit, credibility in the classroom later on, you know, and, and that was part of building that relationship and finding out what's important to those people, you know, our students that we teach and our teachers that we teach with and lead and so forth. But Anyway, I think that's, I think all of that, you know, when you make yourself valuable in a campus, then people recognize, you know, that 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 person has is wants to be a contributor to the success of the not just the classroom and their projects, but to the campus. Well said. Well, there's two things that resonate with you. One, I never really thought about it moving over, like you said, Jeff. And because I'm going to tell you, when I got that administrative certificate, and I'm, you know, now the my coaches were like, "Oh, you go on the dark side." They call it the dark side. They call it the suits. You know, there's a come on now. It's just our coaching talk. But so I never really considered it moving over. I really considered it leaving, like to the other side. And then when you talk about the old school, I when I graduated from UTSA. I was a Kinesi major. All I had was PE. I didn't even have health or driver's ed. All I had was PE. And as you pointed out, Jeff, I went out into the real world with 12,232 other people looking for a PE job. And those are, those are like Willy Wonka gold tickets. And I had to drive 60 miles to go get a job in a small town in Yorktown, Texas, my first year teaching and coaching just to, to get employed. So I, I, I hear all of those things. And I love the fact that you're talking about making a contribution to your campus. And I, and I, you didn't say this word, but I will say versus a cancer, because I've seen both contribution and a cancer, negative versus positive. So as yeah. you grew in leadership, Jeff, the thing that I think that stood out when I learned about your background, 14 years at the same high school in Magnolia, Texas, right? And I love the fact that you, and I want you to talk a little bit about how you named the Magnolia High School, right? I want you to talk about that. But I also want you to talk a little bit about the high school culture. And the reason I say this is, and this is my opinion, everybody does not have to agree, but I'm a secondary minded person. I struggled when I went to the elementary, that was not my world. And now I get it, I understand it. So 
listeners, I, I can empathize and understand all three levels now, but the high schools have very, very, very different land if you've never really been in the secondary setting for an extended period of time. So at the Magnolia High School, did you ever see the challenges where sometimes the environment and if you did, I really want to know this part too. How did you break down the fact that we typically silo effect? In other words, I don't even know that this group of teachers don't know this group of teachers and this group of teachers don't know this group of teachers. And, and we're almost departmentalized to a certain extent, aka siloed. How did, how did you deal with that? Or what was your experiences at the high school with that? Yeah. Well, you know, when you're at a big school with 2,800 students and you know, 250 staff members, you know, that's a huge challenge. It's like a city under one roof. And so I'm like the mayor of, you know, Magnolia High School, the Magnolia High School. And so the very first thing I did was symbolic. Because, you know, when you first come in, you know, you need to learn the lay of the land, but you can do symbolic changes immediately. And so the very first thing I did was I took Stephen Covey's universal principles, human dignity, you know, honesty, integrity, patience, those kind of things, service. They're time-tested. They're not values. They're principles. And, and our vision was that we were going to be principle PLE-centered. Everyone who walked through the door would know that we were principle-centered and that we would become one. And the question would be, one what? And the, and the answer was, one family. So we took the M in Magnolia and we put, and we fit it, you know, we enlarged it around the word, right smack dab in the word spelling of family. And that was part of our logo and our branding. But in the, when you walked in the front door of the school, those universal principles were, I mean, they were all, they were all around. If you looked up, um, all of them were uh, in probably banner size. You know, you know, probably six by ten letters. And later on, after about a decade, there we redid it, and they were instead of banners, they were acrylic letter. Beautiful. They're still there today. And so very quickly, if you walked into our building, you knew very, it was, you know, at least symbolically, you knew that we, that we stood on principles that were universal. And so that was part of our language. And, uh, and if, as you walked up and down the hallway, the main mall, you, we had banners that stuck out with, you know, sent, with 21 different characteristics of, you know, that we wanted our kids to take on as their as part of their you know fabric and so that's who we are as a student at, at the magnolia high school so how do you turn the barge is that you you realize that there's no substitute for time and i never ever had aspirations of going to central office. I never wanted to be any further than the principalship at a large high school because I didn't want to be away from kids. And matter of fact, I everybody would tell me early on that, you know, Jeff, as you move up, you're going to move away from kids. And, you know, assistant principals, obviously, you put out a lot of fires and you deal with kids, but it's usually typically only about 10% of the student body or less. You know, but I was involved. I made sure I was involved, even as an assistant principal over clubs and organizations. I had a goal uh, organization I founded called the Goal Team that stood for getting others to achieve at an arrow higher levels. 
And we talk, and uh, I can talk about that later, but that was something that took more work, but it was part of my passion. And it was a non, it wasn't part of my non-negotiable job description, but it's what got me, it's what I yearn for. It's what, you know, so I, so I contributed again outside my job description as an assistant principal, which separated me from the other assistant principals of, or just being an, a, a, you know, a fireman. And then I moved into the associate principal's role and then the principalship. And of course, everybody said, Jeff, you, you know, the, the higher you go, the further away. And it's not, I said, no, I'm going to do it differently. And even as the principal for 14 years at Magnolia High School, I was the, I was the FCA sponsor as uh, along with, you know, along with a couple coaches, but I was the consistent because our coaches would come and go and I would stay. And, you know, we're in kind of the Bible belt in Texas. It's a little different than, than different parts of the country. And, you know, I got my typical letters from freedom from religion and some of those other things that I'm most proud of that I even frame and that, you know, I use Jesus Christ in my conversation once and I shouldn't, I, you know, now I hold that up as proof, you know, to show God, see, I'm, I even, even says right here that I used your word, your word, your son mentioned your son. But um, anyway, all of those things. And, and here's what, here's what I think I attribute to the longevity I very rarely, I inher- obviously you inherit a staff when you get there. Most principals, and you know this, are two to three years, three to five years mo- uh, at the most, and they're moving on. They're either stair-stepping up or, or on to something different, and either central office, superintendency, something. And, um, and so it's kind of like, okay, we're just going to, the mentality from some staff is, okay, we're just going to wait this guy out, you know? And then when you, then every time I had an opportunity at faculty meetings to talk about the three to five year plan, and they, and they would really hate this one, the five to seven year plan. And then every once in a while, I would talk about the seven to 10 year plan. And they're going, oh my God, this guy is never going to leave. And so they would either peel themselves off or they would get on board. And essentially, I hired almost every, probably 90%, you know, 14 years, you've hired probably uh, 90%. You know, there were a few teachers that were there before me and they were on board from the very beginning. But the ones that weren't, they either took them, peeled themselves off, and then uh, we continue to add every year. And that's what it takes to really move the barge. I, I tell people I, I, I feel like I just, I'm discouraging in some ways to brand new principles, but I tell them, and, and every scenario is different, but we were a single high school district when we opened up, and then we had a second high school open up, and then our enrollment went down to, from 2,800 to about 2,000 or 2,100, and both schools were about the same size. Still large schools, but not mega schools. So you lost some staff and some of the staff that you were hiring for a few years ended up going to the new school because last one in, first one to go and that kind of thing. And sometimes those are the best teachers you've hired because you you're, you now have teachers that actually want to come to your school because of the reputation and so forth. But I think it's consistency. It is so they know where you're coming from. They see what you say is what you do, your, you know, your presence you're cultivating that entrepreneurship through in every classroom. You know, you give, you're providing enough 
opportunity for risk taking and and autonomy and and goal setting and a lot of collaboration and and, and opportunity for innovation and creativity and, and that becomes part of your your campus and so i would say the last 6 years of my tenure there is where we kind of reap the benefits of what we sowed for you know the first 8 years and so we became you know a national you know newsweek top you know most challenging schools and washington post listed every year and all those things are still out there on the building right now, you know, all the years, you know. And so when I drive by the school every once in a while, I don't live too far. I don't go that way very often. But, you know, I'm proud to see, you know, what we accomplished there. Absolutely. And it was it 2013. You were the TASSSP Principal of the Year in the state of Texas. Is that correct? It was. I can't believe it's been seven years already. Yeah. So, so you know, what's what's great about your story, Jeff, is is it's invigorating. It's exciting to hear that ability to sustain change over a long period of time. And so, man, I applaud it. Unfortunately, like you said, it's not the norm. I mean, you you are outside the box. Those three to five years, people are coming on. And so whether it's central office induced, because I've been in a district where a large district here in San Antonio, where they just shake it up and every year you feel like they just move pieces of puzzles around just to move them, you know, just to shake things up with leadership. And all of a sudden you're a principal over here and now you're a principal over there. So sometimes you don't even control it. I think some principals are like, I'm just waiting for the call. It's like free agent season and we know we're going to be moved. So you sticking 14 years there is way outside the box, but I love the fact that you were able to paint that picture of the seven to 10 year plan. And that is what I know staff needs to hear from their administrator is that you're two feet in. You know, I'm here three to five, I'm here five to seven, I'm here seven to 14, whatever it is, you're two feet in. I love the fact that you painted that picture because that's exactly what you just said is what happens when I feel like I come to districts with this relational approach. They're like, oh, we'll wait this one out too. And what I have said and we have many different data. We don't primarily provide the data, but a lot of the districts that we work with use quantitative and qualitative data. And a lot of the districts that I have noticed a trend for me is when the principal has two feet in, not one foot in and one foot out. When they have two feet in, in bringing relationships and connections at the forefront, and it starts with their staff, and then they let it trickle down to their students. So. It sounds like, Jeff, you're a two-feet person in 14 years. How did you help your staff build connections and relationships, what I call campus connections? Let's start, let's start there. How did you help your staff? What were some of the strategies, ideas? What are some of the things that creatively you did to help those 245 people in one large city in Magnolia High School? How did you help them build connections and relationships? What were some of the things you intentionally did to make sure that that was at the forefront? One of, one of the things I'm most proud of is we, every single day, our students and staff heard three things from me, specifically on the announcements, every single day. And with time, we were, again, you, you know, it's easy to say things, but what do you, how do you actually do those things? And it's, it takes time. It does, people, you know, I tell teachers all the time, they're, they're not going to just love you because you walk in the room. 
I mean, you have got to show them, and you know, you may be the first adult in their life that is going to offer them some consistency and, and on a regular basis, you know, nurturing, loving, compassion, you know, those kind of things, but it's still going to take time. They're show me, you know, like, you know, Missouri, I think is the show me state, you know, kids, kids and staff are the same way because they've been through so many changes a lot of times throughout their academic and professional careers. But the three things that I would share and it became a hashtag and it became uh, if you go to my Facebook and you see former students answer uh, reply, they'll, they'll a lot of times they'll reply with one or two hashtags. And the, and the one that I mentioned building wide every day was that they were valuable, that every single student staff member at the Magnolia High School was valuable, that they were complete that they brought, they lack nothing. That doesn't mean they're done growing. That doesn't mean they're done learning, but they have what it takes and they're complete. And of course, you know, as well as I do what that means biblically. Um, and then the last thing was that they were loved. So they were, that um, they were valuable, they were complete and they were loved. And that became a hashtag BCL. The other thing we talked about was uh, we call it six words, hashtag six, the number six words. And I went to a conference years ago. I was a sponsor of uh, Students Against Drunk Driving. We went to a Texas conference, War on Drugs, in Georgetown, Texas, probably early 90s, late 80s. And I heard the speaker, John Credelli, and he talked about the three most important words are not I love you. The three most important words are, I need you. And, be, and I, I, I somewhat agree with that, but we put them together and we say, I love you, I need you. Those are the six words. And I tell, I put it in hashtag because sometimes those are hard to verbalize, but everybody can say six words. Six words, Kevin, six words. I love you, I need you. I don't have to actually say it. And for, for you know, high school boys to say, I love you and I need you, that sounds kind of weird for them. But they will say six, six words. My men's ministry, grown men, you know, respond to my uh, texts with six words, hashtag six words. I mean, it becomes a mentality. It and so we shared that and we talked about things like that in our faculty meetings. And we and and obviously I would meet with a grade level every week. You know, we had a built-in schedule where I could take 30 minutes and I could schedule the freshmen one week, sophomore, junior, seniors. And I spent a lot of time. My last year, I spent more time with the freshman class because I knew that that was going to be a group that, you know, obviously only had me one year. So I wanted, you know, so I spent a lot of time. They were going to be my last group that went, you know, but I found it was funny. I found out the last kid that walked across the stage as a Springer student and was able to find out through one of my counselors who that last person was. And we gave that kid a, a scholarship and through Suit Up Ministries, which is my nonprofit. But, you know, it's strange. You spend 14 years in a building and it only takes three years for every single kid to walk, to graduate through and nobody, rem no, you could spend 50 years and it only takes three years, you know, and a lot of staff leave and so forth. And you can walk into a building after being there for 14 years and still see remnants, but it's still, you know, so you, we only have a short period of time to make a difference, you know? 
Absolutely. No, I think embedding the six words, just the uh, the VCL, um, and, and, and much like us, Jeff, we, we created a shirt at the conference last year that the students wore that said, value me, see me, hear me. We're, we're, we're speaking the same language, but it's always, I always say everyone wants to feel valued, seen, and heard. And so your VCL is aligning that that same premises because when you feel valued seen and heard loved then you feel part of a community and belonging and so i believe belonging for me when i work with staff and i work with students and i tell them you know sometimes my number one intervention as just a tool is if you have a struggling student and that could be academically, but primarily behaviorally, because that's really why they, they're really wanting some more support, is I'm like, hey, have you ever considered, does this student feel like they belong? And, you know, and of course, let's just be very transparent here. A lot of people get defensive. Well, of course they belong to my classroom. No, I, I try to explain to them, don't take this personal. Belonging is subjective. And if I come to the Magnolia High School and I feel like I belong here, I'm going to do better because I just want to feel like I fit in. And I try to explain this to teachers, right? We talk about the, you know, Blooms before Maslow's and, and or Maslow's before Bloom, sorry. And we talk about like you, had, I'd heard you say on the podcast the other day, you know, food, water, shelter, safety, those first tier, two tiers. But when we get to that, and I'm going to pause at the third one belonging, I want to go right to that fourth one. The self-esteem needs to achieve, master, recognize, and respect. I think most educators, that's what they just want from students. I want them to achieve, master, recognize, and respect every student that walks in the door and I'm like, great. So you want them to get to number four, but we're, we're taking number three is, is, is like, are you just inferring it? Is it really known? Are you saying the words or what, what actions are you taking to make sure that that student does feel? And primarily because I led the district with 1,149 types of suspension. I know what it's like to exclude a student at such a high rate that you could tell them you love them and they belong here, but kick them out at the same, in the same speed and same duration and frequency. And those words can cancel each other out. So that was a, that was an epiphany for me was realizing belonging was such a powerful key, not just for students, but for staff. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. You, you, uh, everybody needs to feel like they're part of big, something bigger than themselves and that, that they have a place. Yeah. And, you know, if, if a teacher was unhappy or, you know, a student or a teacher or anybody at the high school was unhappy, then I would ask them what, as you mentioned before, what are they doing to contribute to make it a better place? And if you don't, if you don't like it, then, then do something about it. This, you know, we could try to create an environment where they have, you know, freedom to do that opportunity to, to be a contributor. And, you know, when you're contributing, you, you, all of a sudden you become a part of that belonging. You do feel a part. And if you're a part of something, then you're going, you want to, uh, you want it to be the best, you know, if you feel like you're not only belong, but you're essential to the to the end result, and that so that that is uh, it's not the trick, but that's the process is is getting to the point where everybody adult wise in that building feels like they have an opportunity to contribute. One of the things I we did at the very beginning was 
you know, you, I'm sure you went through the exercise, I call it exercise, from the district down that mandated that you had a campus improvement plan. So what would happen to the campus improvement plan? You spent a month or two creating it so you can do the dog and pony show, and then where is it? It's left on the shelf, and nobody breaks it out until the end of the year to do the dog and pony show again, to recreate what you didn't use the whole year prior. So one of the things I wanted to do was to make the campus improvement plan a living, breathing document. And in order to do that, I required every teacher to, you know, first of all, we had a group that created teams across the building uh, in areas that they identified that we need to consider so we can, so a campus can flourish. And so they created those teams and, and we presented those teams to faculty at the beginning of the year. The only requirement I had was that every faculty member was on a team. That's all I required. I did not require their participation. However, I did ask each team to report regularly their, their, you know, their benchmark and what their achievements. So their cho- it was in their court. If they didn't contribute, then it was on them. If they didn't have anything to report, then it was pretty visible to the rest of the staff that, you know, that they weren't really interested. And, of course, you know as well as I do, when you have a group of people, there are some that lead and some that just kind of follow and then some that don't do anything. So, again, the requirement was to pick one be on one there's a and then we created the roster in this team and everybody knew but uh, and then i gave the team opportunities to and you know it would be like one team might be building wide recognition and from that we created these you know we were our school was big because we emphasized uh uil academics and if you're not in Texas, you don't want you don't know what UIL, UIL is, but it's like a academic decaf, like a cr- track meet. You know anything from ready writing to one act play to spelling, you know, to accounting, whatever. And so you had kids participate in those events, and then at the end of the year, all you would have a district, and then a, you could win state and UIL academics. And that to me was the one competition that showed you showed everyone what a complete school you had across the board because it wasn't just always the, you know, it was debaters and it was, you know, even UIL band, marching band was part of that. And all that, all those points added up. And so we had banners in our cafeteria that hung down that had the names of those that competed and won at the district and state and regional levels. And so when you walked in our building and you looked up, it looked like, you know, it looked like the Boston Celtics with all the championships and our cafeteria, but they were academics. So you had, you definitely had an idea because, you know, you see a lot of that in the trophy cases with sports, but that was the teacher's point. We don't have enough recognition for our academics. And so, okay, that birth, that idea, matter of fact, Catherine Celestine was one of my teachers that was with me before I got there, was with me all, all 14 years. And she kind of ramrodded that group and it became, you know, fruition and it became reality. So that was evidence to the rest of the staff that, that if you want to contribute to this campus, there are avenues for that. And so, and that kept, again, our campus improvement plan alive. Love it. Love that visual. So when I look at 
a couple things you had said, I'm thinking exactly when a student or a staff member is struggling with belonging, I go back to what you had learned from the 80s and 90s from that talk about, I need you, right? So what I've learned in my work is I just ask them, what do you need? What do you need to so that you feel like you belong? And following with what you're saying, Jeff, is what do you need so that you feel like you belong and you can contribute? Where's your passion? What what is What system is not in place that you feel like could be in place so that you can contribute. So I'm just a really big proponent of whenever anyone is struggling in personal life, professional life, what do you need? And the reason I illustrate that today as a tool, because if a student is struggling or a staff member struggling, I'd say, what do you need? And if they don't feel like they belong, then, then I know right then and there, that's the first need I have to address before they can achieve master, recognize or respect. And that goes at staff level or to students. But then, Jeff, you opened up a door, the campus improvement plan, and, and I, I smiled and laughed as, as people probably couldn't see it. But because this is where I want to kind of go, Jeff, is in education, how many times are we just doing things to do things? And education has certain things set up. And what I really want to get to is the meat of this conversation today of like, look, we love to talk and preach about the importance of relationships. But then when it comes down to it, And when reality comes in, a majority of campuses and even campus leaders at at various levels, and then it trickles down to the teachers, it's the first thing that gets pushed to the side. Would you agree with that or what's your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. As an old coach, I like to refer to what you're talking about is, you know, special teams. You know, we talk about in football that, that, that special teams or the kicking game is one third of you know of the game, but yet we only practice it maybe ten minutes at the end of practice, or we devote maybe one day a week to the kicking game, and it can make or break or you know a game. Winner losing has a lot to do with the kicking game. So we give it lip service as a coach, but we don't actually practice what we preach, and it's the same way with, you know, sometimes with relationships or some of these mechanisms that we set up, but we don't ever acknowledge them or we don't utilize them. Those things, those systems that we even put in place. And when urgency comes, we are afraid to put the curriculum on the back burner. So we just forge ahead because we have to be on a certain page on a certain day. Inevitably, kids get left behind and teachers forget why they became (laughs) teachers in the first place and the joy and the play gets sucked out and we it becomes becomes um, mundane and we as human beings become disengaged and when we're disengaged we're not going to be very productive So my thought was, after I started working in all these schools and school districts from large, like Dallas ISD, 170,000 students, right, 23,000 employees, 10,000 teachers, you to to small schools, which is single one high school towns. But I started noticing the same philosophy is that there's accountability for content and curriculum. There's accountability for attendance. There's accountability for disproportionality and for behaviors. But there's no accountability for 
report connections. There's no relationship report. There's no accountability for of connections. And so my hypothesis is coming into this work now is like, is if we don't hold education accountable and the educators in education accountable and our leaders to say exactly what you said, AKA the kicking game, if it's important, then don't just say it. You got to back it up with some actions. That means if I'm a coach and I'm going to be a head football coach and I know that the kicking game is 33% of my, my, my game and I can't complain about it, but yet I'm going to complain about it when it sucks on the field. And I'm going to be like, where's my, you know, where's my special teams coach and what happened? But like coach, we worked punt one time. You know, uh, we were pump block one time. We, we, we kicked two extra points this week. We, we don't work on it. So it's the same scenarios we're coming into the classrooms is what is it going to take in education to figure out this is how it works. When you hold us accountable, we do our job. The campus improvement plan, Jeff, is is an accountability system. You make us do this, so we do it. We're good box checkers. I always say this. Just tell us what to do, and we'll do it. But see, the problem is, is they want to say, don't forget to build and sustain relationships with kids, and then they don't hold you accountable for it, or they don't tell you how to do it. They just say, get it done. It's like the kicking game. They don't tell you how to line up for a PAT. They don't tell you how to line up for a punt. Whatever you want to do, just get it done. And I think that's what I'm sick of. And I'm sick of coming into schools and the minute that we bring in powerful, transformative GTKY, 60-second relate breaks, two-minute connections, 90-second sparks. I took my coaching background, Jeff, and built skills and drills because teachers were so afraid to take valuable instructional time away that I said, well, what if I can give you something that you can do in less than two minutes? And they're like, doesn't exist. Bam, now it does. Because to me, why do we do drills every single day is the fundamentals in all of our athletics? Because it's the foundation, it's the fundamental. And when you get down to it, right, it's the process, it's the system, it's automatic. You don't have to think about it. And we don't abandon it. You know, one thing, uh, your college football, Nick Saban, Nick Saban talks about the whole idea of like, look, we don't try to win championships. We go out there and do our job. And our job is the fundamentals. And we do them over and over and we do them right. And then that way, when it comes down to a championship game or not, we're going to go back to our fundamentals and the foundation and we do not abandon them, period. That's why he's successful. And that's why he's outside the box. And I just want education to say, you say it's the foundation, you say it's the fundamentals, but it's the first flipping thing that goes the minute it's two minutes on the clock and you're down by 13 points. You start throwing the ball when you're a running team or whatever the scenario is, we abandon it. Sorry, that's my. this is my soapbox. This is my passion. What are your thoughts about the lack of, if we don't hold ourselves accountable for this, will it ever change in your opinion? Yeah, you know, what's so difficult is to, to measure culture. We wanted our campus to be something that when you walk through the door, you knew something was different. And so it's not, it's so hard, it's not tangible always. It's, you know, qualitative. And again, it's, there's, you have to, you have to practice like you were talking about on a regular basis, even as simple as standing at the door as a teacher at welcoming your students in every day. If that's all you do and take a pulse of your kids before they walk in the door, you know, that's, that, that is, a, that's laying a foundation and leads to maybe potential conversations that will give you an insight of, you know, what's going on with the kids that are walking into your classroom, you know, before the bell even rings. And, um, which I think is so, so important. 
I know that a characteristic of a successful teacher to me, what what makes a teacher uh, uh, a good teacher great is the ability to be coachable and to adapt and to you know and to to be aware of what's happening and not just teach curriculum but teach kids and in essence will do able to do both and if if that philosophy is ingrained and so it starts at the top it starts you can't expect it in the classroom if you're not doing it in the front office and if you're if they don't see that relationship between you and your secretary between the secretary of the paraprofessionals throughout the building through you know the cafeteria worker the custodians if you don't create that atmosphere uh with you know up front from the leadership then then what you say is and what you do are two different things and the teachers are going to take they're either going to continue like i talked about before be the leader and have this relationship inside their classroom and shut their door, or they're going to be contributors campus wide. That's going to make it so contagious, so positively contagious that people, the kids want to be there every day and teachers want to come to work every day. And so, yeah, it, that is so important, but it's, again, it's cult. You know, what we do with spring strategies is, uh, is we talk about our tagline is cultivating playful entrepreneurs. So even in the midst of all the requirements and lesson planning and, and high-risk te- te- test taking, you still are able to infuse, you know, your uh, curiosity and, and investigative opportunities inside the classroom, you know, for innovation and, and so forth and, you know, and that connectiveness, um, that relationship that you that you're talking about. Yeah, and and, and before we leave today, we are going to jump into your play and in your spring strategies. But I want to I want to stay here for just one more minute, Jeff, because what you just mentioned, I think, is also illustrates this. You just said starts from the top down, but notice, and I'm just going to say this and keep, I try to keep it as real as possible. You just said from the principal down, I'm talking, when has central office ever showed up on your campus and built relationships with principals? When did they come up to you and say, they don't, when is central office coming down and saying not something, a conversation that's related about accountability with scores, testing, benchmark, um, data as far as disproportionality and, and, and exclusionary consequences, um, attendance. I mean, they're not, they're not talking the talk either. And that's what I'm trying to say. I think it's got to go all the way to the top. I need from the leaders of education in states and organizations, from superintendents down to executive directors, I agree. Jeff, you're right. It is so hard. I think there is Panorama out there is one uh, a platform that some people, districts are using to kind of get a pulse on relationships. But let me break it down as simple as this, Jeff. One of the things when I became an offensive coordinator and football coach, uh, my, my head coach said, you need to do the offensive line. I said, Guy, I've been a skill player my whole life, quarterback, running back, receivers, you know. And he said, you, if you're going to call the offense, you need to know what's going on down in the trenches. So I got in there with what I call the fat boys. And you love acronyms. It's called 
called, my fat boys were fierce attacking team. That was our fat boys. And so they weren't just large, they were a fierce attacking team. But the reason I say this, Jeff, is, is I had to learn to teach different off, offensive line skills and drills and fundamentals from just simple half inch, you know, just a step sideways if we were going to do the zone to just these little steps in our hand movements. And we practiced them every single day. Now, in order to look at that, if you were going to use data to support, is that working or not? Did they actually set that step with the six inch step as we were doing an inside zone and put their hand on the outside shoulder? And did they do those? I don't know, but we're running the zone, right? And so I say that is because Yes, teachers want to be coached, but most teachers, I'm going to be very honest, I think we're talking about the top 10%. My philosophy, there's 10% of the, the staff that want to be coached and want to grow and everything else. There's 10% that won't do anything no matter what we do. And then there's 80%. I'm talking about that 80% that said, Dr. Springer, just tell me what to do. And that's where I'm coming into schools and saying, I can give you a six-inch step, put your hand on his right shoulder by doing a 60-second relate break. I can give you a two-minute connection. And we don't need data to tell me that if you're making a connection in one minute or two minutes every single day, that you're not going to make a difference in your classroom. It's inherently going to improve. And so what's crazy about this is I don't need you to look at, say, is it really working? And that's where our system is stuck. I just need you to say, I'm a principal. And I believe what I call, Jeff, I developed the three zones of learning, content, connect, and correct. I believe content and I believe correct are two. And I want you to imagine these as three cylinders of an engine, Jeff. Content is the largest cylinder and connect and content, uh, connect and correct are two smaller cylinders. But what happens happens is, is we only engage the cylinders that you tell us to do. So just like you talk about the campus improvement plan, if you tell me, hey, I got to have this poster on my wall and, and, th and they're coming to visit, I'm going to engage those cylinders. And I'm going to engage those cylinders when I'm told to do so. And what happens is, is there's nobody telling us that you are accountable. And I expect for you to build and sustain relationships because we're not telling them how. And if we do tell them how, Here's my next soapbox. We're giving them into an, a lesson-based curriculum. So social-emotional learning, race, culture, diversity, uh, content, AVID, it doesn't matter what you take. And they're all powerful platforms, not even attacking them. But what we're doing now is, is we're going to what I call blend relationships. Lesson-based programs blend relationships as a byproduct of going over the lesson. What I'm talking about, what we built was relationships at its foundation that is not lesson-based. You don't have to open up. It's not 20 minutes. You don't have to read a lesson. It's just GTKY. And we do it in a structured format of a 60 seconds where it's just a turn and talk and you listen to your kids, but it's structured. And it's what I call cross-connect, student to student, student to teacher, and teacher to student. So those fundamentals, if you put them in front of everything else that you want to do, how are we going to talk about race, culture, diversity, and all these powerful and social emotional needs? How are we going to come back mid-pandemic Pandemic and talk about race, culture, diversity, and your social emotional needs that I haven't seen you in six months, but I don't even know you. Right. Well, you know, you can't, you, can, you know, if you're going to have a meal at the table, you can't set the table after you put the meal on. So, I mean, you got, so there, there has to take some intentionality, some preparation, and, you know, some planning for that. And it, it, again, that's part of being, that's that want to, that desire. And, to take that initiative as you welcome on a daily basis uh, your, your students in, in, into the classroom, however that's going to look like, whatever that's going to look like. Um, so, and, you know, you can definitely uh, 
prescribe some things and some, some of those things just become natural to some teachers and others. They need a little bit more uh, modeling, but anyway, yeah, that is so, it's so, it's so critical. I, I, I got, you know, when I was associate principal, I was in Cypher school district for 19 years before I moved to Magnolia and I was associate principal at a, probably the largest uh, school in the district with the smallest a number of classrooms. So doing the master schedule was like, a, you know, a huge puzzle. And you couldn't do it without staff and, and input from a lot of people. But, you know, I even, we taught a class as the associate principal, I taught a class called teen leadership one period a day. I co-taught it with, a, with a, the drill team director. So between the two of us, we taught first period teen leadership. And in that class, in that course, yeah, there was, as you mentioned, some lesson based, but it was, you know, some of the same principles of teaching, you know, teachers to be at the door, to take the pulse of the students, you know, to have those conversations, good things, bad things, those kind of things, you know, those kind of conversations. And I made, wow, I probably made some real enemies at Central Office, especially in the curriculum department. But I told them as the associate principal one day that at sometimes we have to put the curriculum on the back burner. And oh, my God. Oh, Jeff. You, 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 <laughs> it was almost professional suicide. Matter of fact, that may have been the reason why I needed, I had to leave the district to get a principalship. I don't know, which is sad because I was a product of that district. I graduated from Cy Fair High School and then, you know, started out at a junior, brand new junior high at Watkins Junior High for three years, brand new. And then was next eight years at Langham Creek High School, opened that school up brand new. And then I left the district for a year and was the head football coach and assistant principal at Hempstead High School. And that was a long, that's a whole different story, but that was the end of my coaching career, but into full-time administration as I came back to Cy Falls High School, which was only in their third year as an assistant principal and then the Jersey Village High School as five years as associate. So with all that, you know, experience, uh, you know, that was probably the first time that I put myself in a position where, Unfortunately, I had, I had a relationship with the person I was talking to, but that didn't mean she necessarily agreed with me. But well, I would tell you this, Jeff. Um, one, I love hearing your story because what I just talked about the three cylinders, obviously, for 14 years, Jeff, and for many years prior to that, you ran on all three cylinders. You knew the value of content and curriculum, you knew correction. Your new behavior, the way you handled discipline was outside the box. I'd love to talk about that more next time. But I also realized you knew that relationships and connections were also just as invaluable. And I love the ability that, I love differentiation, Jeff. And what you did is there were times where you needed to put the content and there were times where you made sure you emphasized the connections. There was made sure that they feel like they belong, they feel valued, they love, all of those things. And so I, I, I kind of give that credit to the idea that your longevity in the 14 years there and the success that you had. And so then you've kind of gone into, uh, I want to kind of start to wind down this episode, but I want to talk a little bit about play and then what you're, what you're currently excited about doing. And so what, and then I want people to know where they can find you and learn more about play and how you're seeing that. Because when I, when I heard your version of play and I heard my version of relationships and connections, I immediately tried to put the two together, but I want the listeners to know a little bit more about what you're currently doing and what that play stands for for you. Yeah, when I the very last graduation that I uh, oversaw was 
you know, I gave what I call every graduation kind of the state of the school address. And so in my last state of the school address during graduation, I talked about how I wanted to play more in my next journey, which was kind of the launching of this idea which turned again into a hashtag and acronym, but I did my dissertation on the perception of play with secondary school leaders and its role in building a positive culture. And so even in my dissertation, I didn't really talk in detail about the, my play acronym, which happens to be the four tenets of what we do with our consulting and spring strategies, but there is definitely an overlap. And as I visited, my, my, the gap in the research was secondary education, that the higher the grade level, the more high stakes testing, you know, first thing that goes is um, opportunity for creativity, innovation, investigation, and play. And, um, you know, play is ambiguous. The definition, everybody, you get 10 people in a room and everybody's going to have a different idea of what play is. The, the connotation, unfortunately, in secondary is play is a negative. That play is, you know, it's the opposite of work. But for me, when we talk to people and we go into campuses and talk to administrators, one of the first questions I ask is, is, work, is there work play or is play work? And for me, I never worked a day in my life because I was passionate. I never, I, obviously I had to go to work, but I, re- I went to school, I went to the campus and I wasn't always playful, but because I was passionate about what I did, I was engaged and I played. And so we talked about this acronym of, of, of play in the four tenets. And, and the first letter stands for people. And the question we always ask or who are your people? You know, who are those people? It can be an inner circle, but it can also be the people that you, you know, you oversee. That as a principal, you have a lot of people. You know, who are those people? Who are those people that care about your journey? And who are the people that you care about? How do they, you know, how do they know you care about them? And those kind of things. So who are your people? You know, Woody Hayes, speaking of Woody Hayes, he wrote a book called You Win with people. It's kind of the forest for the trees, but yet we just, you know, we think that we, it's all about us. Sometimes it's all about me and, you know, being a principal administrator sometimes can be a lonely job, but you know, it's lonely at the top. It's true. You know, there's only one person in that building that sits in that chair that really understands that role. And, and nobody, nobody can tell you that, that about that role unless they've sat in that chair. And sometimes you don't, you can't anticipate everything until you actually sit in that chair. So it's important that you have your people. And so identify who those people are. And again, those people that really care about your journey. The second is love. How do you love your people? How do you recognize your people? You know, uh, Lou Holtz used to say there are only three things in life that matters, who you love, who loves you and what you did while you're here on this earth, you know, to make it a better place. So um, how do you love and do they know you love? And then the, the third one, oh my gosh, it is so deep. It's probably the one, it's probably the one that I have to struggle with the most, and it's acknowledge. You know, it's easy to acknowledge the positives, but a lot of times we shy away from the pain and sorrow in our lives. And if we don't acknowledge those things, we stuff it, and eventually it's going to come up, and it's not going to be good. And and so, what are the things? That, and and if you don't acknowledge the failures, then how can you make a plan for success? 
you know, how do you acknowledge other people? And what, what are the things in your life that you need to acknowledge? And then the last one, I, I cannot say this with this word without smiling. <laughs> it's yearn. What do you yearn for? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? What, is, what drives you? What is your passion? Do you have a, lear- a, a yearning for learning? Do you do you, a yearning to grow? Uh, what do you yearn for? And essentially, if you, you put all those together, you play. And if you put all those together and you, you're working within your strength areas, you're going to be an engaged employee or leader. And that's going to be contagious to the people that are around you. And so I say, if you do those four things, you essentially play. So when we visit with administrators or aspiring leaders or teachers, and do coaching, we take them through those four tenets. Inevitably, there's an area that they need to grow in. And that's where we focus and we, and we build on. And that's how, that, what's exactly what drives our conversations for their growth and their development. So that's play. So the question is, do you play? Do you, do you cultivate play in your leadership? I love it. So yearning, my yearning this morning was getting up and, and getting an opportunity to start my day off with you and talking about this work. And I love what you bring to the table, Jeff. So how can people get a hold of you? Reach well, out to you. We have a website. It's cultivatingplay.org is one way, cultivatingplay.org. Or Twitter is uh, the same thing, at cultivatingplay. And uh, my email is jeff at cultivatingplay.org. And so those are three, uh, three ways that you can connect with us. And, uh, you know, we would, we love, we'd love to be inside school buildings. I, I love to be on campus. I just, you know, there's nothing like being on a campus and observing and teaming and, and uh, encouraging the leadership inside our campuses and we, we do also uh, cross, you know, business and ministry. You know, I don't, I, we didn't even touch on that, but, you know, I've always been bivocational uh, and really trivocational. I have a nonprofit, Suit Up Ministries, which is a men's ministry. I'm on staff part-time at a church called Wildwood United Methodist Church in Magnolia, Texas, which I was on staff most of those 14 years and still on staff there now, even after my repurposing. And you mentioned being a youth minister. I was that for a couple of years, uh, almost everything you can imagine title-wise at our church, but I'm the minister of men. And so, uh, you know, my audience are big, a little bit older students now, but I still have a passion for the students and of all ages. And being a grandpa now, I've, you know, my priorities are pretty straightforward and that's to be the silly grandpa and to, and, and to practice my play. I always say that your play is only limited to the size of your sandbox. And so, you know, sometimes we limit, you know, that as teachers and educators, we put, you know, especially at the secondary level, we limit our, uh, the potentiality of our students to play and to grow because we, because we put them in, a sandbox that's way too small for their creativity. And so we need to be aware of that 
And there's a lot of here. Here was the single most interesting fact in the 12 people that I interviewed, those 12 principles that you mentioned in my dissertation. I, I did what I call a three part process uh, interview process. So I interviewed each principle, three separate s- sittings to get the context. And so their experience or uh, phenomenological experience with play and very few of them would call what they do on a day, daily basis. They would would name it play. But in essence, it was play in all different aspects. It was interesting. And it wasn't the question was not uh, the, the number one barrier to play in the secondary level was not what I maybe uh, thought might be, and that would be their responsibilities placed on them because of high risk testing, et cetera, et cetera, and their job description. The number one barrier to play was their very own leadership style themselves. And so that was, speaking of acknowledgement, that was great acknowledgement on many of their parts to acknowledge the fact that they needed to play more and find ways to play more uh, in order to, to have a campus that will, that will flourish. Well, Jeff, I would tell you, anyone who can't see the value in what you brought as the principal at the Magnolia High School for 14 years and what you bring now in Spring Strategies and in your ministries, I think uh, they need to take a look because I will tell you, Jeff, if you gave campus leaders an opportunity to go through your play acronym and bring the experiences and the cultures and the things that you have valued as a leader in education, they're missing out. I wish, I can just tell you this, I wish as I was an aspiring administrator, I would have had somebody out there like you that could have guided me and given me some insight into my own version of play. And so as we end today's episode, I'm going to look back and and think of the words that you did at the Magnolia High School and VCL, right? Making sure that you, along with me, make sure that we continue to make people feel valued, complete, and loved. And all I can tell you, brother, that six words, I'm not going to make it a hashtag. I'm going to say, I love you and I need you. Thanks for being on the show, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Oh, Kevin, what an honor. Lastly, I want to thank you, the listener, the educator, the difference maker. Your time is valuable. I see time as an investment. And I want to thank you from the center of my heart for making it to the end of this episode. But please don't let this be the end of our relationship. If you have the same passion for putting relationships and connections at the center of all learning, then I need you to subscribe and share this podcast with other like-minded educators. It would be extremely helpful if you would leave a review or a comment on what you loved about the episode, or better yet, tell me what you want to hear about more in the future. This way, other educators that are searching for impactful podcasts can get a sense of what this show can offer them. You see, my hopes and prayers are that you were able to find one strategy or one idea that you could take back to one classroom to make a difference for one kid. Thanks for keeping relationships first, and we'll connect with you next time.